Blog Talk Radio. your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion. That's already happening online. We do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, go ahead and post it. We'll do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you can't continue to listen online, please call us directly by dialing 347-202-0227. That way you can listen via phone, or please be sure to use your Bluetooth if you are driving about. Have you ever done anything that could be construed as stupid in the name of love? Of course you have. We all have. We cut people a lot of slack for the stupidity, too, because, well, we've all been there, and it's a beautiful thing, right? However, it's not necessarily our fault when we do these stupid things. And tonight we're talking about how your hormones and neurotransmitters make you do really stupid things in the name of love. My guest is Liz Langley, a columnist for Sex Magazine. However, you can find her writing in Salon.com, Jezebel, Alternate, Details, Glamour, Bust, Destination Weddings and Honeymoons, Carnal Nation, and Gene Simmons' Tongue. She regularly blogs for MyPleasure.com and has been a columnist for the Toronto Sun, the Orlando Weekly, and the Orlando Sentinel. Liz is also the recipient of many awards from the Society of Professional Journalists, Florida Press Association, and the Association of Alternative News Weeklies. Her work appears in Best Sex Writing 2008, published by Cleese Press, and even though she has an incredibly busy schedule, she has agreed to share some of her precious time with us here at Energy Awareness Radio to discuss her new book, Crazy Little Thing, Why Love and Sex Drive Us Mad. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Liz. How are you being this evening? I am being very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Key. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great. Your book is really, really interesting because we do do things that are crazy when we're in love. And the subject of love and sex is not just a hot topic up for discussion. It's actually an economy booster as well. You know, the money that's spent in this area is phenomenal. There's even a holiday for it, Valentine's Day, which is all about love. And it's... You know, and that's the third most popular and money-making holiday behind Christmas and Halloween. So love is not just emotional. It's helping to drive the economy as well, but it's also helping to drive people crazy. Now, your book, Crazy Little Thing, Why Love and Sex Drive Us Mad, provides so much insight for anybody who wants answers or wants to laugh a bit either at themselves or others that they've seen doing stupid things when they're in love. <laughs> and and we really do cut people a lot of slack for it when they're hit with Cupid's arrow because I, th- I think it is because we've all been there and we all know, oh, God, they're in love, just leave them alone. <laughs> right, right, it's true. Yeah. And I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist or a social worker. You are a journalist. So I guess my first question is, how did you come to write a book that at first glance one would presume would be written by a professional in the field of mental behavior? Well, what, the great thing about being a journalist is having access to all kinds of people who are professionals in those areas. So when there are things that, uh, you know, things that I needed to know about neurology and biology and psychology and psychiatry, I had a terrific group of people in the book who I interviewed um, for on a variety of subjects. And so I got input from lots and lots of really terrific experts in the field. And so as a journalist, it's um, kind of having an eye for what's a good story and, um, you know, hopefully what's a good story and a way to put them together and make them flow together. And, you know, as, and also as a journalist, I come across things all the time looking when I'm working on other stories, looking for 
information that I think, oh, my gosh, this is a really terrific thing. I'm going to come back to this later. I'm going to look into this a little bit more later. And I had written a piece on why smart people do dumb things in love for, um, gosh, I can't even, I apologize. I can't remember what the magazine was. But, um, but it just really interested me at the time. You know, we look at um, stories of people like Bill Clinton, who was, and it wasn't necessarily love, but it was, you know, maybe lust, um, that caused him to do something that wasn't so particularly smart and kind of, um, cause a big problem for himself, <laughs> and then and we we see these kind of stories all the time. And then shortly after that, there was this story of Lisa Nowak, the astronaut who um, had driven from Texas to Florida looking oh, for that was a crazy. Yeah, that was totally really crazy. crazy. And that happened about you know less than five miles from me. So wow. <laughs> so that's a, that was a local thing for me and. Um, and so, and it fascinates me. I mean, what, you're like an astronaut, that's somebody that you think has to definitely has to be psychologically stable in order to do a job like that. And it's so intense and you have to be very intelligent. And how does somebody like that go off the rails that way? But the fact is that we all do it at one time or another. And I think expecting ourselves to always make sense might be part of the problem. Like we don't all always make sense. We all, you know, we sometimes we do things that are not necessarily in our best interest or other people's best interest. And I think love is the area where we understand it most, we forgive it the most, and we we almost expect it. You know, that like there's you just get starry eyed. And so I think that you, I, I'm trying to remember what your original question was, T. <laughs> uh, as a journalist, how why as a journalist and why might I, like that is more of a book for a psychotherapist, but um, I have some people in there. One of my favorites who I, who, who has a, a book of his own out that I just interviewed about him about yesterday is a guy named Dr. Joseph Strand, who uh, teaches psychiatry at Harvard and um, runs a, a program for um, teens with addiction problems. And he wrote a book recently called Outsmarting Anger. And, Dr. Schrand was so helpful in helping me understand how the, you know, the the anatomy of the brain, how the brain works, and then also some things about the teenage brain. The teens are, you know, we see teens do crazy things, not just in love, but all kinds of things. We look at them like, you know, we just don't, uh, even though we were teens ourselves, you know, I remember being a teenager and not being the easiest person in the world to live with, and their <laughs> brains aren't quite as developed. You know, we think of them as adults because you know, they're so, you know, they can be so grown up and mature and, you know, they're driving and they're working and they're doing all of these things, but they're really not quite as, um, they're not quite as settled. Their brains are still developing. A lot of areas of their brains are still developing. And so they don't necessarily, they they don't um, see things the way adults see things. Plus, there's also time and experience, you know, that we have that they don't have. But anyway, I talked to Dr. Shrand about that, and he, so he is one of my experts. I also talked to Dr. Helen Fisher, who um, is a, a, a world-renowned expert in this field. She's from Rutgers, and she, um, she wrote a book in 2004 called Why We Love, The Nature and Chemistry of Romantic Love. And I read this book in 2004 and was completely blown away. It was one of the reasons I ended up doing what I did. 
um, it was all about how she put, she and her team would put, uh, got subjects who were either very much in love or who had just broken up with someone, and they put them in an MRI. Uh, so, you know, an MRI technology is something we read about an awful lot now, and I do not remember. I think that was my first exposure to um, you know, basically, you can see what's going on in somebody's brain with an MRI, mm. and um, and so she would show them pictures, neutral pictures of, of you know, just like neutral scenes and pictures of the person that they loved, and watch the changes in what areas of their brains were activating, and it, when they saw pictures of the people that they loved, and it, I really thought about after reading this incredible book I thought about love very, very differently. Um, I think that we're sort of conditioned to think of our brains as brains are smart. Right? <laughs> brains, right. Are, brains are for doing things that are smart. So why would they ever allow us to do anything as silly or as ridiculous or as against our own self-interest as we sometimes do when we're in love? But there are the brain is really much more complicated than that and so it's not just about if, if it was just about you know if it was just about smart we would all just never we would all just never do anything silly or stupid or again against our own self-interest we would never be at a loss for words like i just was a second ago <laughs> they don't always they don't always work exactly the way that we want them to so, so there's a lot of empathy, I think, for people who go a little nuts in love. Yeah, I think so. I think especially depending on their age and or or the conditions that are involved. Because if you know somebody who has gone through an awful lot and now they're finally they found the one, you're very happy for them. You know, oh, right? I agree. I agree. I've seen that happen a couple times too. So, hello. 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 I think I lost you. Well, obviously we're having technical difficulties here this evening. Um, oh, I got cut off again. Are you freaking kidding me, people? Hi, Liz. Hello. Hi, Liz. Hello. Oh, am I not on the air? Seven eight one nine three nine one has dropped. Okay. This is not good. You're back now. I could hear you. That's just great. But she's gone. <laughs> Okay, I really don't know if anybody can hear me or not. <laughs> what is going on with this? Come on, Liz. Come back. She's there. Hi, Liz. Can you hear uh, me? Yeah, I can hear you. I don't know what's going on. I keep getting bumped out. When you were talking after my first question, I got bumped out and had to come in, and it was seamless. No one knew. But now everybody does know. <laughs> Uh-oh. 
Well, oh, I'm yeah. here. I'll, I'll hang in. You keep you just hanging tell in. Me... I don't know if I'm going to get bounced out again. We'll just have to see. <laughs> well, you just let me know, and you just ask away, and and I will be. I'll be here. Okay, so I'm trying a different landline. Is this effective? I can hear you. That's good. I don't know if anybody else can, but hopefully I won't get kicked out again. I can't believe that. that it happened like four or five times. So anyway, let's see. So that's how you came to write your book, or that's how you came to write it without being somebody who's in the field of, um, you know, psychology or anything like that. But yeah, why is it, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Why? Why do you think that? love and sex actually drive us mad, I mean, to the point of where we we do get that way. It is the things in the brain that happen, the neurotransmitters that produce different hormones and just bring us up to that very high vibration, is it not? Well, that's part of it. You know, the, the, what Helen Fisher found were the areas of the brain that were activated when people saw pictures of the people that they were in love with were areas that involved um, the neurotransmitters dopamine, norep- do- dopamine and norepinephrine were the yep. two big ones. And dopamine is that chemical of um, – it's a chemical of excitement. It's a chemical – it's been associated with addiction. It's, been, it's very much associated with pleasure. We also get dopamine rushes. There have been studies about um, music – and we get a dopamine rush when we hear particular passages of music that really, really excite us. And interestingly, I believe it was, I want to say McGill University in Canada, they, there was a study where it was the anticipation of a favorite part, a favorite passage of music, and especially thrilling passage of music that really made the dopamine move. Like you're so excited about this thing that's going to happen. And when you feel that excitement, you just keep wanting to feel it. Right. And so you go ahead and – now, this is something it's – it's a natural thing that's happening to you. It's a drug, but it's not a drug you're taking. It's a drug that just all of a sudden is coursing through, <laughs> through your brain sure, and causing you – It's gets triggered in your body, especially through even like sports or other things. That's why it's so – so strong and people like to get their endorphins up there because it does make them feel good and it does kind of push them over the edge into that happy zone. Absolutely. And it makes you feel good. And it makes you, it's also a chemical of novelty. It makes you feel excited when there's something new that's exciting to you. You meet somebody that what you have that, you know, your eyes meet. There's a statistic in the book. I think it says it takes like 0.3 seconds to fall in love. There was a study. Yeah, crazy, that was isn't it? Dead. <laughs> it's, it's it's insane. It's like quicker than the blink of an eye that all of a sudden this has happened to you. Now the question is, what are you going to do with it? So right. you know, it, it, it's it's a person 
right for you. Sometimes we don't care if the person is right for us. Sometimes we don't care if they're married to somebody else. Sometimes we're just so we fall so head over heels in love with this person or in lust with this person, and it takes a little while to figure out which is which. Sometimes <laughs> it's, it's certainly fair. earlier to confuse the, the two early on. But you know, you were you were asking what makes us go crazy or do crazy things. And also, I think um, one of the uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is what makes some people go crazy and do crazy things, and what makes some people able to not follow those impulses to do crazy things. And sometimes it has a little bit of something to do with their, with our backgrounds. You know, if you were raised in a very volatile, very emotional household, then you might be prone to respond to things in a volatile or emotional way. If you were raised in a, a place that was calmer, where people were were a little bit more steady on and took their time, and and uh, then you might be prone to respond that way because you've been trained to respond that way. So there, that's, there's a lot of different elements that go into it. But, um, but part of this is I think people are very hard on themselves when things don't go right in love or when they've done something, you know, oh, my God, how could I ever have fallen for that idiot? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, people people do get they can be very tough on themselves and that makes it very difficult to kind of pick yourself up dust yourself off and go out and do something else really stupid <laughs> well yeah but i think that's because it's it's instead of being in the brain at that point you're in the heart and your emotions become involved and and you, well, you know that it's really difficult to control your emotions cuz you can't help you can't help who you fall in love with everybody says that you know right right if we could help who we fell in love with we wouldn't have any of these songs about heartbreak. We wouldn't have any of the, you know, the, we wouldn't need therapists when it went bad. You know, the the money-making industry that you were talking about, we right. wouldn't need divorce attorneys. Right? Exactly, <laughs> and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, and when you talk about emotions in the heart, it's all it's all coming from the brain. Everything is coming from the brain. But it's, it's, um, it's there are some parts of the brain, like um, there's, there are different levels of the brain. Like the limbic system of the brain is a more primitive um, part of the brain that has reactions that, that go back millions of years. To that's that's where fight or flight and things like that come in. Right. So those are emotions and and reactions that are very primitive and designed for survival. That you know we see something that we perceive as a threat. And we can either stand up and fight or we can run away, whatever it's going to take to preserve ourselves. So that, that's all in the limbic system of the brain. And then there's this higher, more evolved kind of more um, uh, rational part of the brain, the, the PFC, the prefrontal cortex, where mm-hmm. our executive function is. That's where our, we make rational decisions. We're able to figure out consequences that if I fight, there's going to be consequence. I might get hit, <laughs> stuff right. like that, or I might get in big trouble. And that's where we are able to, to try, you know, hopefully make the more rational decisions. And sometimes that limbic system wins, and sometimes, you know, we still need those primitive impulses when something, something happens that needs a response right away. And we're assessing all the time. Our brains are working so hard all the time to assess what we need to do. And But when we're about to do something crazy in love or we're making that decision to, you know, go for this person who's not so good for us or do something, you know, really wacky or really dangerous or really bad or violent, 
then then that's the time when we have to really exercise that PFC, exercise that prefrontal cortex, and try to do the more rational thing. It's not going to yeah, hurt so somebody else. A lot of people just follow the same pattern over and over and over again, and they can't withstand a relationship because they're always going after the same type of person, the person who's not right. necessarily right for them. What is right. up with that? Why does that happen? Well, one of the reasons that happens, um, I'm glad that you brought that up because another one of the experts that I talked to, see, this is the great thing about being a journalist. They get to talk to all these therapists and figure yeah. things out. And, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's terrific. So um, one of the, the authors that I talked to, she's an author and a sex therapist. Her name is Sherry Winston, and she was terrific. And she talked about why, um, why it is that people fall for the wrong person. I mean, there's chemical reasons that we fall. You know, there are some chemical reasons that we fall for the people that we fall for. But um, she talked a lot about the Imago theory that Dr. Harville Hendricks um, made very popular in the 80s, I think it was. And the Imago theory is um, it's about our childhood and about the, the caregivers that we had when we were young. Um, and the way Sherry explained it was, the way we experience love and the way we understand love is the way we experienced it in infancy, when we were children, when we were little babies. And so however we got love, she used, she used the, the phrase the flavor of love. Whatever flavor love came to us in is the flavor we understand love to be. So if you had a parent who was maybe at times a little bit cold, and this is not necessarily like a parent blaming thing, you know, parents, you know, mostly do the best that they can. Sometimes, though, even if you are incredibly loved, sometimes not feeling loved can make a child feel, if, you, if they feel that just for, you know, a little bit, that can be very stressful for them because that means that there's nobody caring for them and they need somebody to care for them all the time. So, um, so but say, for example, if you had a parent who was somewhat cold, who was a little bit distant, maybe not as demonstrative, always as mm -hmm. you would you'd like them to be you grow up and you fall for somebody and realize after you've been with them for a while oh my gosh this is just like my mother this person is just like my mother and they have that same kind of distant chilliness that you that you had a problem with when you were a kid and the imago is that like we're trying to fix that relationship through somebody else is like trying to make that parental relationship better, trying to repair it through the person that we're involved with in a romantic way now. So if you can get that person to love you, that sort of fixes the mom thing. So that's one of the reasons which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And I could see, I can see absolutely where that, that could be as, as certainly a, one of the reasons that people tend to fall for the same type over and over and over again. Did I lose you again? I think I lost you again. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello? Yeah I, yeah, I got cut off again. I don't know. Something's going on with Blog Talk Radio. It has nothing to do with the phone lines because this is the third different phone I'm using, so I know. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. I'm so sorry. I apologize profusely for all of this. It doesn't oh, make no. it Oh, no. Believe me, I understand. Technology, a, isn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, it's not what it's cracked up to be, you know. But it's interesting you should say that about people trying to, um, they end up with someone who reminds them of, you know, you married your father or you married your mother, that type of thing. But mm-hmm. the person who is the product of the two people who may have been cold or, or not necessarily very affectionate or loving and is looking for that isn't necessarily the same way as the parents. No. It They're not you, more affectionate. Now you're talking about the the child who who grows up to be that person yes. who then who is attracted to the person who's maybe a little distant or chilly. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, the product right. of the of the yeah of the household um, of the, of the parents there. They're not necessarily like that because I know people who are very affectionate and want affection and love in their lives, but they're not necessarily finding it because the partners that they keep dating or going out with or marrying are not that way. So it's interesting that the child doesn't necessarily come up like that. Well, yeah, and I I I don't know. Do you think that that's? I would think that that's sort of a compensation. You know, for yeah. something that they that they weren't getting. A lot of times, we try to compensate for the things that our parents did, didn't, or maybe didn't provide, or maybe some way that they weren't. And we think like, I'm not going to be like that. You know, you hear right. that a lot. Like, I'm never going to be like my mom, or I'm never going to be like my dad. So, um, so yeah, I I can see where where that would be. Um, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it kind of does. We are talking with Liz Langley author of Crazy Little Thing, Why Love and Sex Drive Us Mad, and you can visit Liz at her blog, www.liz-langley.blogspot.com. Now, this book is stories and narratives and interviews that nicely package up everything, you know, science and psychology, and it's easy to read, and it's interesting because you can pick different stories and see if there are any that, might relate to someone that you know or yourself or anything. You did a lot of interviews and a lot of research for this book. Was there anything that you found to be really shocking that you discovered in your research of the book? Well, um, there were a couple of stories that, you know, you were talking, I think you, you said just a moment ago, you know, that the, the, we were talking about the people being able to see yourself in some yeah. of these different stories, because we all do do crazy things in love. I really hope nobody sees themselves in some of these stories. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, that's some of them, <laughs> Some of them are so dark. And some mm-hmm. of them, and I have to admit, I definitely have a, a, a taste for the macabre. So there are some of, some of, some of these stories are very, very dark indeed. Some of them are, um, um, some of them are, there is a couple of crime stories in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there yeah, there aren't a, not a whole lot of happy or successful relationships that you write about, you know? You know, I was wondering why. <laughs> well, because it was, it's because in all love stories, like all the great classic love stories, Romeo and Juliet, no happy ending there. It's always the stories where they're kept separated by something. It's always the stories where something goes horribly wrong. It's, you know, the tragedies, they kind of like, oh, my gosh, you want so much for them to get together, and then something something goes wrong. Now, in these stories, sometimes they are together, and something goes wrong. Sometimes they are they are parted, and one person can't stand to be apart from the other. And so then there's a there's a couple of them. There's a lot of violence in these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, one in particular that I think was my um, was the impetus for for me to do it. I read this story and I couldn't believe it. 
um, there was a couple named Bert and Linda Pugash. They they ended up getting married, but um, this was in the 50s in New York, and they dated. And um, to make a very long and incredibly interesting and complicated story short, I hope people will check it out and, you know, take a look at the book and check it out. But the, these stories are really amazing, people's stories. Um, Bert and Linda met in the 50s, dated for a while. She split up with him. He was already married. She found out he was already married. And they split up, and they had been – he was madly, madly in love with her. And um, he started to drink very heavily. He was a lawyer. Um, he had really, really it, – it drove him over the edge. And he hired a couple of thugs to beat her up in hopes that she would come running back to him for protection, yeah. to feel safe, right? And one of these guys took it upon himself. And when I talked to Bert, he swore up and down that he had no hand in this, um, in this particular part of it, I mean. But one of these guys took it upon himself to throw lie at her. And mm-hmm. she ended, she eventually was blinded. And um, so that, you know, that's one of those, you know, you, you hire people to do something like this and it's kind of out of your hands what happens yeah, after that. Yeah, you can't say I, I, they didn't have a hand in that. You hired the person to do something. It, it, right there, it's all on you. And you know? Right, it, it is. And then, and then you think, you know, how that's one of the things that is so so confounding, even after doing all this research and finding out all these things about love and, you know, you love someone and yet – you know, so many times people, you know what, what they say when you, you see a, um, a, a violent act or a murder or something like that, in a murder mystery TV show, they always look for the spouse or the partner first. Right. They, that's the first person that they look at. Now, how can that be when there is supposed to be love there? But at any rate, um, this is what happened, you know, and he said he had never intended for that to happen, but um, he ended up going to jail. The two guys ended up going to jail I want to say it was for 16 years, 14 years, something like that. He was in prison. Yeah, when it was he a while. got I and he, that. it was quite a while. And mm-hmm. he sent her money. He was, I mean, he was he was extremely remorseful. Sent her money. Tried to help her, and um, she she wasn't she wasn't blind at the time. She was able to work, um, but she was blinded and disfigured, and she. Um, when he got out of prison, he asked her to marry him, and she said yes. And they were married for, I think, 30-something years. When I interviewed them for the book, I think it was in, I want to say 2009, 2010, mm-hmm. I went up to, to talk to both of them. Linda has since passed away. She was 70. She was in her 70s. Bert is now in his 80s. Um, and it, it's just, it was the most, extreme thing that I had ever heard and you watch them together and they're a couple you know they're just they're a couple together I was amazed and I just thought are you kidding me what are you thinking right what is wrong with you that you're going to do that I I, I just can't even I just I could not wrap my brain around it I really couldn't but people are driven over the edge there's a you know there's you've got that whole you've got that that brain chemistry is activated. And yeah. when the object of, you know, there's a, there's another thing about that, you know, that dopamine rush 
is that when the object of your desire is taken away, you'd think that those neurotransmitters would kind of recede, and actually they get stronger because they're trying to, they go into, they're kind of scrambling to keep what they have. They want, they're motivating you to keep what you have. You know, a job that you, when you're, when you're going to lose a job, you're a lot more intense on keeping it than if you're going to go out and get a job. There's something about keeping what you have that's like, that's a little bit more of an intense experience, I think. And so the, the, there's also, um, there's an addictive quality, too. Oh, sure. Um, was, yeah. So I, I have something up here about, about um, that I wanted to quote, if I can find it. But at any rate, um, that story, that was such an intense story for me. And so I, I, I was amazed that I got a chance to actually go and speak to them. And another thing, you know, I talked about background. His background, his, his background was not... I talked to another girl in the book who had come out of a terrible, a terrible breakup, and her, her response to it was she turned around and made one of the most beautiful movies that I had ever seen in my life. Her name was Nina Paley, and mm-hmm. uh, not was Nina Paley, it still is Nina Paley. <laughs> She's a filmmaker, and she made an incredibly beautiful movie called Sita Sings the Blues, and um, it's an animated. Um, film about the Hindu goddess Sita and her breakup story was sort of similar to Nina's and Nina saw this similarity and made this incredible piece of art out of her heartbreak and out of her tragic story and so, so what makes yeah she did something good with it so it, it, it's really you know these things are going to happen to you like I was talking with Dr. Shan last night we were talking about anger and, you know, is anger ever a good emotion? Well, yeah, anger can be a very – it can motivate you to right a wrong. It can motivate you to do a lot of things. It's what you do with the emotion that's the, – the emotions that your brain is presenting you with that makes the difference. It's how you, can, how you channel it that makes the difference. Yeah, it's the choice that you make with it. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, you've interviewed – how many people did you interview for this book? It had to be a lot. Twenty-four. <laughs> Okay. There are 20, 24 interviews, and, and Bert and Linda were one of them, were two of them. You know, you asked me for a happy. You asked, you said that there weren't too many happy. Can I tell a happy? Right. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Tell a happy. My, well, uh, there's a chapter on spiritual, the spiritual nature of love, because to me, it's an intensely, it can be an intensely spiritual experience. You feel when you're in love with someone, you're with that person. You you feel like you're not even in this world anymore sometimes, and you know that kind of what generates that feeling. And there's um, there's uh, there are some things in there about religious experiences and spiritual experiences in the brain, and how they work. And um, I I lucked into um, a couple who um, they run a bed and breakfast in Michigan. And or they own a bed and breakfast in Michigan, I should say. And she was a former nun, and he's a former priest. Yeah. And um, Robert and Nadine Vegan, and they had met when they were both a part of the clergy, and but they didn't get together. They had both left the clergy, and it was sometime after they left the clergy that they ended up getting together. And she, I, I talked to her about what is that. 
was the difference for you between your spiritual experience of love and your your romantic experience of love? And her response is basically, it's all love. I love God. I love Robert. I love my daughter. I love, you know, I love my life. That's, it's all the same for her. Like that love is all the same for her. And I thought it was a beautiful story. And they have a vineyard too, which is <laughs> she was happy every single time I talked to her. <laughs> she was one of the happiest people I've ever spoken to. So, yeah, there, that was there were a couple of, um, of happy stories, but most of them seemed like they probably weren't. It, it's very, it's a very interesting read. Now, the twenty-four. So everybody you interviewed, I didn't know if there were more people that you interviewed and didn't include in the book, but everybody you interviewed, you included in the book. Um, I'm trying to remember if there's anybody I interviewed and did not include in the book. I don't. There were some people that I was that I wanted to try to get. Um, there's some people that I was hoping to to try to get to, but you can't get everybody, you know. Right. And so, you know, sometimes people were I, I either couldn't find them or they didn't respond or they didn't want to talk. Um, but um, but yeah, so I got. I got quite a few. I think I got quite a few good ones, and especially the um, the experts in the field. I, I think I was really lucky to get a lot yeah. of these people who were able to explain these heavy scientific concepts in a way that um, make that make them understandable. Yes, and even though you know the brain has an awful lot to do with why we act crazy and we can cut people some slack, there is an extreme edge to it as well, which. That's not the good part. Those are the bad, like the guy hiring someone to, to beat the woman so she'll come running back to him. And then, you know, he says, well, that I didn't have a hand in the lie. Yes, you did. It's all on you. you know, well, yeah, I, and and it, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, there's a, yeah. like some of these stories, there's just like every aspect of it is heartbreaking for everyone involved. It's, yes. it's just it's a tragedy. And I think that, you know, the thing, the takeaway from it, there's two. The takeaway from it is, first of all, really think about the consequences. You are capable of thinking through the consequences of your actions. Yeah. And so you have to kind of, like I said before, exercise that that uh, more rational part of your brain that makes you say, whoa, 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 whoa wait, wait a minute. Why do I, what, do I really want to do this? In the big picture, is this going to be – how much – how much is this going to matter in the big picture? Is there nobody else in the whole wide entire world for me? This is a world of, you know, how many billion people? <laughs> right. right. There's, there's, there's got to be somebody else. feel that way. I mean, I work on people who will come in and they'll say, I just don't think there's anybody out there for me. And I'll think, wow, that's really sad. Yeah. And what do you do, what do, you do as a therapist when you hear that? Well, I'm I'm an energy therapist, so to me it's like, wow, we need to really concentrate on what the block is that's making you feel that way, and let's try to release that block because that's just not right. And I, I try to tell them, do you know how many people live on the planet and you're just one of them? There's a whole bunch right. more, you know, and you never know where you're going to meet someone or see someone. or And like you said, it takes like less than three seconds. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a somebody had once said, you know, you walk by the person that you're going to marry at least six times in your life before you are even introduced to them. Really? And I mean, how would anyone know that? What kind of study are we paying for as taxpayers for that? You know, how many dollars? There, there really is a study that says you walk by the person you're going to marry six times before before you, you even before you meet them. Actually meet them. So. And I don't know if they did this in New York City or what. And I thought, really, how how would you know that? 
what are there cameras <laughs> everywhere and you're matching people up? I don't understand that at all, you know. So that was one of those things I thought, yep, that makes sense that we'd be spending money on that, you know, because it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy that somebody would want to know that. But, you know, the we need to – I think there are sometimes – we need to find a way to match people up better because there are a whole lot of people living in a whole lot of marriages that are not happy. They're too married, not happy. And right. Ooh, it, that's un- a very good phrase, G. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. They're too married, they're not happy. It's, it's almost as though, you know, years ago you'd see in the newspaper somebody was married 50 years and it was a huge deal. Not so much anymore. People live longer. So they get sick and tired of each other a lot faster, you know. Right. <laughs> you got to rematch these people up, and then you've got all the online dating and speed dating and all those types of things, which you you speak to a little bit in your book. You talk about some very different places and events. Well, yeah, some of the um, the some of the attitudes towards like the predominant attitude about you know you meet somebody and you fall in love and, and you stay with them forever and ever, I personally think that there there have to be more narratives than that for us to want to mirror because that's really great and works for some people. But if it doesn't work for you, you really feel on the outs in the culture. And one of the people that I talked about that with was Catherine Ramsland, um, who is a forensic psychology professor, who I met. This is one of those events that you just talked about. I met her at a really cool event called DraculaCon 2. <laughs> okay, and this you is do a, like a macabre. Go ahead. <laughs> I do, I do. And I, I really like Catherine. I interviewed her before. She's Catherine Ramsland. Um, if anybody wants to check out her website, she's a terrific author, numerous, numerous books, and she's a really interesting person. She's this petite little blonde lady who, if you saw her, you would never think that she writes about these, these massively bizarre <laughs> subject and she she was um going to be at this conference this DraculaCon conference um in Pennsylvania there was a demonologist there there was like it was so it was in this little town called Winber Pennsylvania and I thought you know at first when I heard it was a Dracula convention I was thinking like oh it's going to be I live in Orlando so it's like kind of tourist and convention center and all of that kind of stuff, but no, this right. is very different. This is very small. There's was not Twilight. <laughs> and there's a demonologist. The person actually refers to themselves as a demonologist. Yes, that was that was there who I really? met. And yes. And I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I should find What is a demonologist? I it is a people a person who studies demons. And yeah, but does he make a living they, doing it? I, well, I've seen him on TV. So hang on really? a second. I'm going to find his name. I know I've seen him on TV I mean, I just TV think this before. is crazy. It's like I never heard of a demonologist <laughs> before. Like, they don't call people bartenders anymore. They're mixologists. I get that. What the heck is a demonologist? <laughs> Here, let me see. Um, <laughs> I can't well, believe I'm looking it up. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> that's one of those hazards of the job. But, um, uh, no, I just had a Roman Catholic demonologist. Oh, here he is. Adam Bly was his name. And Adam Bly. um I, I B L A I and I have, I know I've seen him on television before and he was he was there in Wimber. Um but I talked to Catherine about that whole um you know, if you're if you're how how people feel when they're not not everybody gets to have that sort of happy ending and be part of that culture. Right. Be, be part of this cultural narrative where 
you know, you meet the prince and you fall in love and you stay that way forever. And I think that's another thing that people get really down on themselves for. And it's like, boy, look around. <laughs> I mean, I think we all sort of feel um, if, if, if we really took a look at what other people do. You know, I thought I, I, there was a terrific study. I think it was out of the University of Colorado that was just a few, maybe two weeks ago it came out. And it was a, it was a, um, a, a happiness study. And they were asking people, they correlated amount of sexual activity with happiness, sort of like the more sex you're having, the happier you are. That's kind of a no-brainer. But then when people, if people thought other people were having more sex than them, their happiness level went down. (laughs) Oh, my God. But you know what the kicker is? It may not be a happiness level for for a person in the couple. I know I know I know a lot of couples, and I I know someone who um, the wife is just like I just whatever, but she's not happy about it. Mm-hmm. So he right. is, but she is not. You know. Right, right. And so, well, you were talking before about um, what did you say? Too married, not happy, or too yeah. married, too married, too married not, happy. not happy. Yeah. I thought that that was a really good phrase, and I think that, you know, there there are a lot more ways to do it than to be married to one person for the rest of your life. A lot of people marry repeatedly. A lot of people now, I've never married. I never plan to. Um, it's just kind of not my thing. Some people have success in polyamorous relationships, and I think I think that's really interesting because they really – they acknowledge the fact that you're not always going to necessarily be attracted to one person and open their relationship up to more than one person. And I think that's, first of all, brave both emotionally and culturally. And, you know, it's it's easy to say, well, it doesn't work. Well, sometimes monogamy doesn't work. (laughs) I don't know, you know, I mean, different things work for different people. And so for some people it does work. It's so, funny. I have a friend um, who keeps saying, she says, I think marriage should be like fishing licenses. You renew the permit every couple of years. <laughs> you know <laughs> oh what? God, that's funny. <laughs> I think she's right. Because then, you know, if if you have that disparity in that relationship, you know, like you were talking about, well, for one person it's a good level of sex, or for one person it's a good level of this, but not for the other one, then you have you have to negotiate. And you're like a candidate that has to, that's you know, right. kind of, Keep your play, like, fight for your tenure. <laughs> it, it is a contract. You're absolutely right. It is a contract, and it does need to be renegotiated because people change. People right. change. You're married to somebody for 10 years, and, okay, now there's going to be changes. There might be kids involved. Well, life changes when kids are involved, you know, and now there's not two incomes, and now there's a lot of maybe fighting because you're not living the way into the style that you wanted to be accustomed to because you have children. And, I, yeah, a lot of things change within the, within the relationship, even just based on two people who don't have children going out and working, and their interests change. And now they're finding people at work who have different interests. And, you know, it's funny. They talk on TV all the time about, well, this is the the work spouse. Most people Mm -hmm. do have a work spouse because the spouse at home doesn't get it. Because marriage is something you have to work at. 24-7, 365, there is no vacation from that. People think they can go away. Like, no, there's no vacation from that. It is a job. And if you can, you know, get it down right where the both of you understand that, then probably you'll have success. But if you can't, if one of you is working and the other one's not, you're not going to have success. And love goes right out the window at that point. Love is gone. 
You know, right. I, I don't know what the brain's doing, but the love is completely gone when you start to to feel resentment, rejection, um, unworthiness, uh, not appreciated, and all of that. It, yeah, that's got to go. So it, it probably is something that should be negotiated. You get married for ten years, and we'll see you in ten years. You can come back and renew your vows. <laughs> right. Well, I I agree. There is there's something called a contract marriage. And I can't remember what day it was like. I wrote about it a long, long time ago. I was a columnist, and um, and it was like you renegotiate this contract every two years. And I thought, like, that's just about the time when you're starting to get lazy. <laughs> so that's a yeah. really good time, like at least for me. You know, I don't know about for other people, but I start taking things for granted right about that time. And, yeah, it's you know, when you and, need new towels because the ones you got for your shower are no longer, you know, they're just worn out. Then <laughs> you need new towels, you need new sheets, you need now you need to renegotiate the contract. Yeah, right. And it's like you know what you were talking about is like the resentment and things are getting old and needing you know pe- and not feeling valued. People really, really need to feel valued. This is another thing that I was I was talking about with Dr. Strand last night in his Outsmarting Anger book. That when people feel that something that they they need is threatened, whether it's their relationship or their home or whatever, they're going to either get angry or they're going to get depressed. And but the bottom line is not feeling appreciated, not feeling valued, feeling like you're going to lose this or you're going to lose that because you're not being valued by the other person. And it can lead to a lot of resentment. So talking about it, communication, it's real easy to talk about communication. It's real hard sometimes to communicate yeah. because these are our most vulnerable places. There's, we're so vulnerable. And that's one of the things that I admire about polyamorous couples and open relationship couples, the ones that I've written about, is, boy, you have to clearly communicate in that relationship. Oh, yeah. Because if, if you don't, then, then that's like when resentments and jealousies and things like that can come into play. Plus, you're dealing with a whole other person. You think your schedule is tough with two people. Then you bring right. a third person into it. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I agree with you about that. That you know, it, you, I think that that every two years, if you thought you you know, it, it, like when people are up for a, a performance review at their job, they, exactly. they do a little better. <laughs> and so, like, if you thought, like, gosh, I'm going to lose this person, I could. They could opt out of the contract. What am I going to do? And then there's this other other whole issue with, and you just mentioned it a minute ago when you bring in a third person, but what about like Sister Wives? There's a show, I've never watched it, but it's called Sister Wives, and it's all these women married to this one guy, and and they all have different, you know, they all have babies with them, and I'm thinking... What are what's going on in their head? That is crazy in the name of love. I don't I can't even understand why you would want to share. Well, that's one of those things where I've watched Sister Wives before. I haven't watched it in a long time. I honestly don't even know if it's still on, but um just because I don't have cable TV anymore, but um I I thought it was really interesting. To me, it's very much like that. I think it could be the culture. It could have something to do with the culture. There reason if they're um, raised in a culture where that is, you know, where they're, um, they come from a family uh, that's a um, polygamous family, yeah. and that's what they know, and then they're okay with it. It's amazing what you can, what you're, what you know, people can be okay with if they're, they become used to it, they're raised with it. It's just, you know, a, it's kind of a cultural difference. But, you know, for us in our culture, where we're used to one on one. 
mm-hmm. then that becomes like, how could you ever? Because you want that person all to yourself. They're supposed to be only for you. Right. So, so, um, but I think the people who are able to do that, um, that are able to share, have somehow they've they've dodged the cultural thing that we have of jealousy, that um, they don't see that, and they don't see the other person as threatening. They think like I'm going to be able to have this relationship, and she's going to be able to have this relationship. It doesn't mean I'm going to lose this relationship. So there don't, that's that's what I would get out of it. Just kind of understanding those things about um, about your resources aren't threatened, your relationship isn't threatened. This is again from the from Dr. Joe Schramm's book. Right. That you're, if you're not feeling threatened. Then you're not going to get angry. You're, right. you're, it's it's a it's a respectful relationship, and which and is why so, sometimes we'll see a relationship where you know I'll say an older couple, and the husband is has a mistress, and the wife has known it for years. Right, and, and she's it just okay with it. You know, she's like that. I've always thought that was just okay. There's money there, and she just doesn't want to leave. She she's comfortable. She doesn't think she'll find anybody else. Or but sometimes it's well, I love him, but he's got to do that. So. You know, it, yeah. it, it, we could go on and on forever about all these things. It's crazy, isn't it? Well, hence your book, Crazy Little Thing. <laughs> right. And that, I do think that's a very loving thing to recognize that somebody else, you know what, he needs this, and I'm going to let him have it because he needs it, and I don't feel threatened by that. Like, that's pretty amazing. Like, a lot mm-hmm. of people, if you look at somebody else, you're talking to somebody cute at a party, your your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend can get mad, right. you know? And so it's kind of remarkable, the emotional the emotional differences between people and what some people can and cannot tolerate. So yeah, it anyway. is. We are almost at the top of the hour, Liz. I can't believe it. But before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they may purchase your book, Crazy Little Thing, Why Love and Sex Drive Us Mad? Absolutely. You can go to Amazon.com. It's on Amazon.com. You can also go to my blog, which is LizLangley.com. Um, and there will be a link there to the Cleus Press website, and you can go to Cleus Press and get it. It's a Viva Editions Cleus Press book. That's great. So, listeners, we need you to spread the word. If you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, share it with your friends. Send the link to the show so they can be made aware of all the wonderful things that are offered on the show. All of my guests share their time freely. They give us a minimum of 60 minutes of their day to help us all, and as you are all aware, they do it at no charge. You pay nothing for the wisdom and knowledge that you receive here at Energy Awareness Radio from all of these wonderful guests who share their time and expertise with us. Thank you again, Liz, for sharing your time. It's been great. The conversation has been so enlightening and fun, (laughs) and I appreciate you taking your time to be here. Well, thank you for having me, too. It was a total pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Thank you. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another great show. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. Sorry, we just changed it. Quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archived list of past shows, the lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. Thank you.
When I remember Give it. 